Hello and welcome to the Social Entrepreneurship Diaries. My name is Andrea Barbosa. I am Portuguese, I'm a writer, a journalist and an immigrant here in the Netherlands. This is the first episode of this podcast and I have decided to start from the beginning. When and how was social entrepreneurship born? Yes, we are about to go on a little journey through history. As I've discovered, social entrepreneurship is a large field with many different roots. In this episode, I will be looking only at a small fraction of its European roots. Other pioneers and other stories will be featured on upcoming episodes. But first, let me tell you how I discovered social entrepreneurship. I came across a project called Fruta Feia in the newspaper. Fruta Feia means ugly fruit in Portuguese. An environmental engineer named Isabel Soares created a consumers cooperative that provides its members with ugly fruit and vegetables. Those are the crooked carrots and stained apples that usually never leave the farms because supermarkets only buy standardized products. Instead of being wasted, some of those non-complying fruits and vegetables, which amount to an average 30% of food crops, are now making their way into the cooperators' kitchens. Cheap, healthy food, less waste. What a great idea. I thought I would love to be part of something like this. And then I realized this was called social entrepreneurship. My interest led me to SE Lab, which stands for Social Enterprise Lab. It is a group of people who practice and or study social entrepreneurship here in the Netherlands. They helped me put this podcast together. Here's an introduction round. My name is Laura. I got involved in social entrepreneurship at my first student job in Utrecht at the sustainable clothing print shop. That was the first time I realized that from uh, natural materials to something like your clothes or something else. It's a whole chain of, well, different people and not everybody gets his share in, in, in these uh, chains. So I think that's, that was my first eye-opener from where it started that I now can't imagine that I will ever work for a company that has not even a thought about what is our impact besides the financial part that we're gaining. So I think I'm a social entrepreneurial person now. <laughs> My name is uh, Floor Basten and I became interested in the issue of social entrepreneurship I think some 15 years ago when I had a postdoctoral research into so-called active citizenship. And one of the elements was how you can practice active citizenship via entrepreneurship So now, 15 years later, I'm still curious about this combination because usually um, idealism and commerce are considered to be private matters, whereas society and democracy and openness and inclusion are public matters. So how can you bring private and public together to enhance uh, and ameliorate societies? My name is Peter Linde. I work part-time at the University of Utrecht and I'm the initiator of uh, SA Lab. I think that I've been around quite some years now when it comes to uh, social entrepreneurship. I was uh, the founder and principal of Chaos Pilots Netherlands, and that was in 2007, 8 and 9. We called ourselves International School for Social Innovation and New Business Design, because we didn't know about the word uh, social enterprise yet. 
And uh, what I took from that experience is that uh, I thought it would be very, very interesting to incorporate uh, social entrepreneurship in regular education. And that's what we did. My name is Christel Logge and I work as a social entrepreneur for nine years now. What I love uh, most of working within the social enterprise lab is to combine this uh, policy with practice, uh, with education, research. So to have this relationship between uh, as well social entrepreneurs as young people in the educational system and to also improve the knowledge base for social enterprises. I'm uh, Marguerite Evenaar. I started in the field of social enterprises when social entrepreneurship wasn't really defined in the Netherlands. If you see a social problem and you see a way that you can solve this in an entrepreneurial way, it is more sustainable, it will create more effect or impact on society. And also, we do have social problems which cannot be solved in an entrepreneurial way. But if we do solve the other problems in a, in a different way, in a social entrepreneurial way, we do have money for that low end of society. And then we can go towards creating an inclusive society where everybody is part of this society in one way or another. I'm Mark Hillen. I'm a director and a founder of Social Enterprise Lab and Social Enterprise Netherlands. I got engaged in this field. My, my background is in, in big business. I have worked for Accenture for a very long time, um, but wanted to do things that are more relevant for society and for the world and better the world. So more and more I got interested in entrepreneurs that actually do that, that, that focus their business on real value, not on financial value. And therefore I got, uh, got more and more interested and founded these two organizations. The main reason, well, in the end we want a better world. We want a circular world without fossil fuels or all that stuff. We want an inclusive world where people can actually do something together. Um, we want strong communities where people are together. And that's what these businesses work at. And it's a lot of fun to do that. But it's also very valuable. So that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. I guess that what brings us together as a group and what connects us to you, our listener, is a vision of the world that is both grim and bright. Grim because we see inequalities rising, poverty prevailing and the planet being ravaged. Bright because there is no fatalism in any of this. We want to look for and engage in ways of providing for ourselves that steer away from suffering and destruction. Our quest is not new, you may say, but in this thing we call social entrepreneurship we now see a powerful promise. And how do we define social entrepreneurship, you might ask? The word entrepreneurship comes from the business culture. Enterprise usually means business, but to a great extent, the social has been the prerogative of the welfare state and of other classic actors such as charities and the church. Social entrepreneurship, those two words put together, that is something relatively new. That doesn't mean that the reality it refers to is new. As we will see throughout this episode, social entrepreneurship has century-old roots, but we are now looking at a set of historical and contemporary practices with a new lens, 
many new lenses, actually, because there are differences between the way the field has been approached in the United States and in Europe, for instance, and the concept is still evolving. We will come back to this on another episode. But for now, here's a quick definition. Social entrepreneurship is the process of creating social value through the pursuit of some kind of economic activity. But wait, isn't the purpose of all economic activity exactly that? The baker certainly creates social value every morning by providing bread to the community. Take a moment to think about it while I play you a little song. If you got it, you don't need it. If you need it, you don't got it. You don't get it. Shame on you Funny, funny, funny What money can do Them that have it Get more of it The less they need it The more they love it And it sticks to them like glue Funny, funny, funny What money can do Ask the Money My colleague Floor Baston Will now take you on a journey About what money can do Ask the poor man, he don't doubt, but he'd rather be miserable with than without if you spend it. Our relationship with money seems to be quite problematic. Not just these days when capitalism with a big C is put forward as either savior or destroyer of humankind. But from early time onwards, our relationship with money has always been rather uneasy and troublesome. We humans struggle with many concepts like love and treason and possession, But none of these concepts are so materialized that you can actually hold it in your hand like money. Our worrisome relationship with our physical environment is of rather recent years. In contrast, our troublesome relationship with money started from the day we invented it. Why is that? Money has never been neutral. It has always been and still is a representation of something else. This something else is the desire object. And when there's desire, there's value and trouble. So money is about value and value is a slippery term because it's both hyper-subjective and super-social. Some of us feel the need to act as judges in the values game and decide which values matter and should as such be strived for. Who are these people? Well, Greek philosophers, of course. They had an educated opinion about just everything. And so they had ideas about money too. Or to be more precise about wealth. Wealth is a desirable state of being, but the problem is that it's scarce once it's narrowed down to materialism. Plato reportedly said, Money makers are tiresome company, as they have no standard but cash value. In around 300 BC, Epicure created a garden for self-maintenance and sobriety, where he and his fellows could study the world without worldly interruptions. Even before the Greeks, the classic Chinese text Tao Te Ching dated from the 6th century BC, stated that the three greatest treasures one can have are love, frugality and generosity. In verse 59 it says, In leading people and serving heaven, it is best to be frugal. Being frugal is to be prepared from the start. Being prepared from the start is to build up power. By building up power, nothing is impossible. So philosophers gave money some thought, and so did religions. Religions stressed the value of solidarity and charity, and they condemned money as a goal in itself. Greed is a sin. 
but the march of history forced religions to reevaluate their stance. Here's Floor Boston again. All world religions prescribe rules about how to use money, and all world religions also condemn usury, the charging of interest. He who lives by usury in this world shall not live in the world to come, wants the Torah. And Jesus advises in the Gospel of Thomas, If you have money, do not lend it at interest. Rather, give it to someone from whom you will not get it back. Buddha defines wrong livelihood as scheming, persuading, hinting, belittling, and charging interest. Allah does not bless charging interest spells to Quran, and in a similar tone, Fascista says, He who, acquiring property cheap, gives it for a high price, is called a usurer and blamed among those who recite the Veda. Usury was universally condemned. But in early 16th century Europe, trade and commerce had developed in such a fashion that Christian theologians began to feel the urge of the revaluation of usury. Why not allow it for lending within the margins of reason? Why not allow it for business or commercial purposes? And why not allow it under the condition of low interest rates? The Protestant reformer John Calvin established seven rules under which usury was prohibited, a clear step away from the universal ban it knew before. And in 1545, the English Parliament passed an act against usury, the first legal statute that allowed usury and provided for an interest rate ceiling. From all times to the present day, money is a powerful tool for trade, and as such it reinforces the social. As the social isn't inherently good or bad, money is used for both, and so it can be beneficial and detrimental. The current discourse about social economy and social enterprise and the many initiatives popping up are putting money under critical scrutiny once again. Our podcast will be focusing on Europe. And in Europe, social entrepreneurship is anchored in the third sector tradition. The third sector is made of everything that doesn't fit into the two classic sectors of the economy, that is, the private for-profit sector and the public sector. In Europe, third sector organizations mostly take the form of cooperatives, associations and mutual societies. In the United States, the landscape is different, with the non-profit sector being historically defined by foundations. To understand social entrepreneurship in Europe today, we have to look back at these alternative economic actors that appeared hand-in-hand hand with mass capitalism, trying to promote democracy and equity in the economy. This is not me speaking. I am more or less quoting from a paper by Belgium researchers Jacques de Fourny and Marthe Nissens. The cooperative movement was born in Europe in the wake of the Industrial Revolution. The year was 1844. The birthplace was the town of Rochdale, England. This was where the first cooperative store was created. There had been other cooperative experiments before, but this store in Rochdale was the first that actually succeeded and eventually grew into a network. Also, the men who started the cooperative came up with a set of principles that became the standard guidelines for cooperative organizations and are still in use. The legacy of the Rochdale Equitable Pioneer Society is preserved and displayed at the Pioneers Museum in Rochdale. I spoke to Jennifer Mabbott, the museum manager. She told me that 
In the 1840s, some local shopkeepers were taking advantage of factory workers by selling them low-quality goods and charging high prices. Some of these workers got together to change this and improve their overall living and working conditions. That's how it all began. The Rochdale pioneers were um, 28 men. Um, many of them were woolen weavers um, and they were also skilled tradespeople. They got together. Um, at the time, it was during what was known as the Hungry Forties, the 1840s. Um, and life was really difficult in Rochdale. Um, it was around the time of the Industrial Revolution. Um, some unscrupulous shopkeepers um, were doing things like adulterating the foods um, and weighting the scales. And so what the Rochdale pioneers wanted to do um, was open a cooperative store um, that would sell honest food at honest prices. So there would be none of the food adulteration, um, none of the weighting of the scales. And how did the other shopkeepers react to this idea? Many of the shopkeepers that were in Rochdale were not very happy um, about the store opening because obviously they were um, adulterating the food, as I've mentioned before. A, a store that offered honest food at honest prices um, was going to expose them and also potentially take away their trade. So the pioneers faced some animosity and they did struggle to find a building to rent and they also struggled to find a wholesaler that would supply to them. So the story goes that in the lead up to the opening night, the pioneers pushed a wheelbarrow all the way to Manchester, which is about 10 miles there, 10 miles back, to buy the goods to sell into the store because nobody um, would supply to them locally. What is there actually to see in the museum? So the museum is um, on Toad Lane, which is a um, conservation area with a cobbled street. And as you um, enter the museum through the green door at the front, we've tried to keep this looking as it would have done on the opening night. So they just had um, two barrels and a plank of wood as the counter because they didn't have a lot of money to spend on shop furnishings. And they just sold butter, flour, sugar and oatmeal. Um, so again, we just show those items on the counter. On the opening night, you had um, Samuel Ashworth and Billy Cooper working there, um, who were the two youngest pioneers, only 19 and 20. Um, and Sam was the first shopkeeper um, and Billy was the first cashier. To begin with, the store only opened a couple of evenings a week. So they did that on top of their day job and they didn't get paid for the first three months. Um, it was a labour of love. The two young pioneers that operated the store received no pay at first. A labour of love indeed and of courage. The link between industrialization and the emergence of innovative social ideas and practices can be found elsewhere in 19th century Europe. I have discovered that Proudhon, yes, the French anarchist, introduced a number of ideas that are still relevant today for thinking social entrepreneurship. I talked with Laurent Gardin, a researcher at the Valenciennes University in France and a member of MS, a European research network on social enterprise and the third sector. He has given some thought to Proudhon's legacy in this field beyond the well-known statement that property is theft. 
Proudhon aime bien les, les formules choc. Hein. La propriété, c'est le vol, donc ça, ça arrive dans, 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 son, dans ses premiers ouvrages. Proudhon was fond of strong statements. Property's theft appears in his early writings. The property he refers to is capitalist property, which steals the collective force of the workers. A worker is paid according to his or her portion of individual work, but the collective force, the surplus which is generated by the combined forces of all workers, is stolen by the capitalist. And that's what he means by property's theft. Proudhon criticizes property, but he also criticizes the confinement in communities. He rejects the idea of collective property or state property. He develops a kind of third way between these two extremes, which is the concept of social property. In this sense, property is connected to the workers, but not to individuals. This idea can be found in cooperative principles, for instance. And cooperatives have inspired the social economy as a whole. In mutual societies, property cannot be appropriated by its individual members. And when associations are dissolved, they must pass on their property to another association. Proudhon is also very interesting in the way he approaches the practice of the social economy, although this concept didn't exist at the time. He was himself the founder of a people's bank, which didn't last very long because of the repression that the workers' movement was facing then. Proudhon rejects utopian socialism. His propositions concerning the economic system and mutualism are directly inspired by practice, especially by workers' movements such as the Canis de Lyon in the 1830s and 40s. The story of the Canus is an interesting one. The Canus were silk workers in Lyon, which at the time was the largest industrial city in France. They used to work independently and were well paid because of the craftsmanship that silk weaving then implied. But with the arrival of new, more productive machines and big capital, their working conditions and salaries were seriously affected. Some were working 18 hours a day for half the pay they used to get. De Canus did two things which were new at the time. First, they rebelled. Their uprising in 1831 is a landmark in the history of social movements. They were well organized and took control of the entire city of Lyon, despite military deployment. The working class as a force to be reckoned with, this was new. Second, the Canus invented new forms of association. They chipped in money for a collective fund to be engaged in case of disease, unemployment or old age. Theirs was one of the first mutual societies of the industrial era and one that inspired Proudhon to develop his philosophy of mutualism. So, cooperatives, mutual societies and other forms of association began to spread along with the Industrial Revolution. Organizations of this kind represent the core of the third sector, or social economy, in Europe today. Here are some Eurostat numbers from 2010. 
paid employment in cooperatives, mutual societies and associations within the 27 EU member states concerned 6.5% of the overall working population. The distribution is uneven. New member states have lower numbers, old member states higher. And in some particular regions of Europe, the third sector is huge. In the Basque country in Spain, there is Mondragon, and now world-famous corporation and federation of workers' cooperatives, which employs about 80,000 people. It all started in the 50s under the impulsion of a Catholic priest, José María Ariz Mendiarieta. How did such a cooperative giant emerge and thrive there? I talked with Elisa Terrazzi, a development officer at CICOPA, the International Organization of Industrial, Artisanal and Service Producers Cooperatives. She told me that for the original kitchen stove factory to grow into a cluster of cooperatives, there was an essential factor, the creation of a credit union. The Mondragon Group uh, was born in the last century, uh, in 1956, if I'm not wrong, and the first cooperative established to produce kitchen stoves. Three years later, a credit cooperative, which is named Caia Laboral, was created. And Caia Laboral uh, got the role to be a, a development bank dedicated to the development of new cooperatives by an incubation system. So you can see that from uh, local needs, forced little critical mass of cooperatives are created. And very often it happens that credit cooperatives also have the role of creating through incubation new cooperatives. So credit plays an essential role in the development of cooperatives, as it does in all enterprises, I guess. Another factor is cooperation between cooperatives. Sophisticated intercooperation is happening in Mondragon, but also in Emilia-Romagna. There are over 8,000 cooperatives in this wealthy Italian region. Some are leading the way in organic farming, and they cooperate. What is very interesting in terms of uh, a particular feature of the uh, organization of cooperatives and the way of functioning in Emilia-Romagna and in other regions which also helps explaining their success, is that cooperatives managed to achieve a very sophisticated system of intercooperation, connecting cooperatives to each other and mutualizing support instruments. Actually, the creation of uh, horizontal groups like consortia is a key modality of uh, inter-enterprise cooperation among cooperatives. And in our sector, in the sector that we represent, which is industry and services, this is particularly strong and important. So you can find uh, uh, these groups that can be small, medium-sized or very large in different type of activities like uh, social uh, services activity, but also construction, industry and so on. And they are very important. Why? Because they contribute creating economy of scale. They define common business strategy, they develop common support services, and they allow the participation of uh, uh, this group to public tenders, which would be very difficult for a cooperative individually. 
So the lesson from Mondragon and Emilia Romagna is that cooperatives that come together with other cooperatives can grow exponentially as economic players. Business strategies and support services can be shared and together they are able to participate in calls for bids from the public sector. I find it very inspiring to hear about these features of cooperatives. In one of the coming episodes, we will look at how the economic and financial crisis has impacted on European cooperatives and on the social economy as a whole. We will see how the democratic management features of these structures have been beneficial in times of hardship, but we will also look at the limits and problems of certain governance systems. In two weeks, there will be a brand new episode of the Social Entrepreneurship Diaries. In the meantime, you can visit our website, sediaries.org, where you'll find all the references concerning this episode and more. We would love to read your comments and suggestions. Many thanks to Jennifer Mabbott, Elisa Terrazzi and Laurent Gardin. Credit for the music goes to Poddington Bear, Alex Fitch and Adam Seltzer. This podcast is co-produced by SE Lab, the MS International Research Network and Impact Hub Amsterdam. Thank you for listening. Thank you.